and all the way from Idaho, we have Montana Mike. Thanks. My name is Mike. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is November the 11th, 1988, and I'm real grateful for that. But I've had a, a great time down here. I always do when I come down here, and, and you know, I get filled up, and, and I'm able to go back up there. They call me Montana Mike from Idaho. I, my last drink was in Montana. I lived in Montana for quite a few years, and, and now I live in, in Idaho, and the Montana part kind of always stuck. So now it's Montana Mike from Idaho. But, uh, you know, I, I, I loved Montana when I lived up there. We were back there at the table talking about it a little bit. Some, uh, one of the gals back there, she'd been in, in the little town I lived in in Montana, Red Lodge. We were talking about that, and, and she said that uh, she'd gone over and seen uh, Chief Joseph, where they were doing the Chief Joseph over in uh, South Dakota, and, and she was in a little town, uh, Corvette. They were having a Corvette show in, in Spear, Spear uh, Fish, or Spearhead, uh, South Dakota, and, and uh, I was kind of reminiscing on being back there a few years ago. A couple of us were over there to Sturgis, and we drove over there to a little meeting, and, and John, Motorhome John, was with us, and and if you guys remember Motor, he, he's one you don't forget. And uh, Keith rode over to the meeting with him, and we got over there, and, and Keith said, my hell, by the time we were halfway here, he had me wanting to drink. And, and uh, you know, John, uh, John still, uh, he still tries to still, he still has, uh, you know, some difficulties. He doesn't make wise decisions, John doesn't. And, and uh, I had a call to... Uh, two days ago, Tate called me and says that uh, John was getting his power shut off. So he went down to the pawn shop to pawn a bunch of stuff off to get some money to pay his power bill, and he come home with all these toilet seats, just a whole huge amount of toilet seats. To, so he pawned all this stuff off to get money, and, and instead of getting money, he bought these toilet seats and said it was such a good deal he, he couldn't pass it up. And, <laughs> Chase says, what do I tell him? And, and I says, well, tell him he can put some of them around his neck when they turn the power off and run around the dark. And, and uh, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I have fun with them guys there. The guys up in Idaho and, and uh, Utah there, they say to, they said to say hi to you guys. They're all packing Tate up. He's, he bought a house in Idaho not too far from me, and, and they're moving him Monday and Tuesday, so he'll kind of be up in, in that area. But, uh you know, they, they uh, miss you guys and enjoy being around you, too. And, and uh, you know, this is, uh, this is where I do the best in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's where I, I do the best and I feel comfortable. I, I, uh, I don't want to crawl out of my own skin when I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, it wasn't always like that. I, I, from an early age, I, I had problems. You know, I, I grew up on a cattle ranch, and, and so I, I was uh, away from uh, other people kind of growing up and, and I found booze when I was young. I was real young. My my sister uh, got a bottle of vodka, and you know my my folks didn't drink around us, so I, I had never really. I mean, I, I I'd seen them lit up, but they didn't drink around us. Where I'd, I'd watched them, and and she got this bottle of vodka, and, and we neither one of us had a clue how to drink, and so uh, we got us two big glasses, and we poured the vodka in one and water in the other, and we plug our nose and guzzled the gut the vodka and then guzzled the water and, and look at each other and, and did anything happen to you? And she said no and, and I said the same thing so we tried it again and 
I don't know how many times we did that, but it, when it hit, it was, uh, it, it was immediate. And uh, I can just remember being immediately drunk, and then I don't remember anything else. And, and the next morning, she, uh, my sister was showing me what I'd done to all the lawn chair in the backyard. I destroyed all the lawn chair. I, I don't know if it was the color of it or what it was, but I destroyed it. And, and that's kind of how my drinking was from then on. From uh, My drinking was always kind of like that. I, I would get drunk and, and do things and wonder why I'd done them. And, uh, you know, over and over. And, and uh, you know, I, I did. I started drinking at a young age, and, and uh, I started doing uh, some other things at a young age. And, and you know, uh, the first time I ever smoked pot, uh, you know, I, I some other some guy come out, and he had some pot, and we smoked pot. And, and uh, he had it in his back pocket, and I remember going down to the river. We were going fishing. We were both laughing. And I reached up and took it out of his back pocket and put it down my pants. And uh, immediately from smoking my first uh, time I ever smoked pot, I become a thief. And, uh, you know, I, uh, and then we spent all afternoon going up and down the river looking for that. And we looked for so long, I almost gave it back. And, uh, but, uh, you know, and... And that's how it was. That's how my uh, my my uh, drinking and drugging was. There was never any control, and and uh, you know there was always a dilemma in it. And you know I I started ending up in trouble at a young age, and and you know it was just petty petty trouble in the beginning. And and uh, you know the first thing was just a simple thing, but it was uh, they took it kind of serious. We we were over to the football stands, and a bunch of us were. Uh, drinking and, and we rolled this big weenie wagon that they cooked the hot dogs in down the bleachers and it just rolled down the bleachers but it did thousands and thousands of dollars worth of damages that rolled down the bleachers and and uh, we got caught for it and, and you know that was uh, that was the start of uh, dumb problems from, from drinking just dumb stuff that I used to do and, and uh, they, they started sending me to counselors at a at an early age, and, and uh, shortly after that, they start sending me to treatment centers. And you know, I it takes what it takes. And, and I finally got sober in my 13th inpatient treatment program after I was in my 26th detox. And and uh, you know, in the beginning, I'd be in there, and I had no desire to stop drinking or or stop doing what I was doing. I I had just ended up in trouble one more time, and I I wanted out of the trouble. And then I kind of went through their thing, and and I'd get out, and I I head back to where I'd been, but, uh, you know, the, the last few years I was drinking, I, I gave those treatment centers a shot. I, I wanted to make a change, and I'd go in them, and, and uh, I, I'd get out and end up uh, what I call struck drunk, and, and that's what I used to always do. I had full intentions not to drink, and, you know, I, I was in one in uh, Blackfoot, Idaho, which is about two hours north of where I live, and and uh, the day we got out, I, I rode home with some guys from Montpelier, and we got drunk on the the way home, and, and uh, you know, it, it got to where my, uh, my sobriety or my attempts at staying sober were shorter and shorter from those treatment centers, and, and you know, uh, there at the end, I, uh, there, there was nothing left. There was no hope uh, when I hit them treatment centers. There was just nothing left, and, and uh, you know, I, I drank myself out of a, a place to live. I, I drank myself out of friends. I drank myself out of, out of uh, work, and and uh, you know, my last drink was in uh, Missoula, Montana, and I uh, I was 
being thrown out of a bar. I don't know why I was being thrown out of the bar up there, but uh, I was being thrown out of the bar. I was drinking uh, shots of tequila with some guys, and, and just before they threw me out, the, the two guys had their tequila sitting there, and I drank both their shots, and, and then they really threw me out. And that was the last drink I ever remember having. And, and uh, I got in uh, my car, and I headed down the road, and, and I think they must have uh, called the police from that uh, bar because I got pulled over, and I was uh, extremely drunk. And when I was getting pulled over, it was like uh, it was like a godsend. It was I. It was like it's over, you know. It's it's over. I I don't have to continue on. And and this cop come up to the window, and he looked at me, and he said. He, he could tell I was drunk and he had to respond to an injury accident. And he told me, he said, if I didn't have to respond to this injury accident, you would go to jail right now. And he said, do not drive. And he run back to his car and got in his car and took off. And, and uh, you know, I thought I was being saved when he was pulling me over. And, and I, I got in the car and chased him. And I, could, I was so drunk, he outrun me. I couldn't keep up with him. He did. He outrun me. And... and uh, I woke up uh, laying next to my car the next morning. That was November the 11th, 1988, and it snowed on me all night. I, I don't know why I was laying next to the car, but I know I woke up and, and I was covered in snow, and, and I got back in this car and, and uh, drove down the street, and there was a, a detox there. It was in Galen. I'd been to that detox before, and, and I went and I checked in that detox again. And, and like I said there at the end, it, it was... Uh, it was just a hopeless state when I check in them in those things because I couldn't stay sober. And, and what happened in that one? And you know, I, I believe it was my spiritual experience, but I, I I was given hope. I just was filled with hope. And uh, somehow, after all the times I've been in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, and all the times I tried to get sober, I was in that last detox, and I just knew I could get sober if I did Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew I could get sober, and. And uh, I believe it was uh, uh, a God-given gift of hope, is what I believe. And, and I just had that, that inner feeling I could get sober. And, and from there I went to uh, that last treatment center, and, and uh, you know, and, and I did. I, I, I managed to get sober. I got out of there, went to Butte, spent 30 days in Butte. And, and just because we get sober doesn't mean we quit moving. And, and that's what I've done my, my whole life is I just... Or, or ever since I was a kid. I was a runaway as a kid. I ran away, was uh, uh, picked up uh, on an APB, brought back, and, and but I, I, I couldn't ever stay put. You know, I was a runaway kid, and, and uh, you know, for, for the last many years, I'd just been bounced around from uh, town to town, state to state, and, and uh, living, uh, living the life of a drunk. And, and I got sober, and just because we get sober don't mean we quit doing all that, and, and uh, I, one more time I moved, and I moved down here. I had a sister in Southern California, moved down here in 1980. So from 1980 on, I used to kind of end up in Southern California until and, and, uh, she told me I couldn't stay on her couch anymore, and then I'd, I'd move on. But I ended up down here, and, and I went to the, some of the meetings I used to uh, go to in Southern California before, and, and one of those meetings had a guy in there, that uh, the same guy, and I didn't like this guy. I didn't like... Uh, what this guy said, and, and uh, or the way he he acted towards me. His name was Alan, and and uh, you know I got a job down here, and when I got sober, I I I had this station wagon, and everything I owned was in this station wagon. I had a a box of clothes, and 
and I had one pair of shoes. They were my work shoes, my AA shoes, my play shoes. I, when I got sober, I had one pair of shoes, and they had holes in them, and if, so if it was raining outside, my socks got wet. So I got a job, and I went into, uh, I got my first paycheck, and I went into the boot barn, and I pair, bought a pair of boots, and I bought a, bought a pair of suede boots. They were the cheapest boots in my size they had, but it's all I could afford, and, and, uh, I went to the meeting with my new boots on, and Alan looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, Nice boots, Mike. And this was on a Wednesday night, and, and through that Wednesday meeting, I got madder and madder at him for saying that, because I, I, I thought he insulted me about these boots. And, and uh, you know, I believe Alan was trying to be uh, kind at that time, but I took it as an insult. I did. I took it as, as an insult, and I thought about that all day Thursday. And I know where he went Friday to the meeting, and I went to that meeting Friday, and I was so raged with his comment that I, I was going to follow him out and confront him on it. And I thought, well, I'll follow him out, and I'll hit him in the nose when he goes out to have a cigarette. And he went out to have a cigarette, and I followed him out, and the next thing I knew, I was asked if he'd sponsor me. And uh, this is honestly what Alan said to me when I asked him to sponsor me. He said, you know, Mike, you think it's a privilege for me to sponsor you, but what you're really saying is, Alan... I'm a piece of shit. Can you help me? This was a, and, uh, so I left there, and, and, and he says, uh, if I was serious, to call him tomorrow evening at 6 p.m. And I left there, and, and I went and sat down, and I kept, I kept thinking about what he just said and, and uh, how I should have hit him. And, and, uh, but the next day, you know, I could have told you at any given time of the day what time it was. And, and uh, I called Alan at exactly 6 p.m. It wasn't one minute to, it wasn't one minute after, it was at 6 p.m. And, and uh, I called him and Alan said, uh, are you going to the meeting tonight? And I said, yeah. And he said, I'll see you there and hung up. And, and uh, that started it. And, you know, Alan told me that that's, uh, that's where he started with me to see how willing I was to, to see if i call at 6 p.m. And uh, I was willing, you know, I, I uh, I was willing. I was willing. I, I'd hit a point that I was willing, and and Alan uh, used to have me do things. You know, I'd, I'd uh, and and I was depressing. I was depressing when I was new. I remember going to a meeting one time, and and Alan tell me to go sit at that other table. He said, "Go sit over there, Mike. You are depressing," and uh, you know, and and uh, I had all these problems, and I wanted to talk to Alan about them, and and. Uh, you know, when, when uh, I try to talk to him about it, he'd, he'd uh, say ignorant things to me. But, uh, you know, when I start talking about the solution and what I can do to get better, that's when Alan started talking to me. And, you know, Alan, uh, from the get-go, he had me going down to Charlie Street and picking up new guys. He'd have me go down to Charlie Street and get these new guys. And, and uh, you know, this uh, great big red-headed kid showed up down there. His name was Jerry. And, and Alan had me go pick... Uh, Jerry up, and, and I went down, I picked Jerry up, and, and Jerry was one of them guys in Alcoholics Anonymous. He was a great big red-headed kid from northern Idaho, and uh, he's one of them kids that you just didn't want to hang around with in Alcoholics Anonymous. He, he was, now he was depressing. Jerry was depressing. And, and uh, we went to the meeting, and Alan told Jerry to ask me to sponsor him, and, and uh, I don't want to sponsor Jerry, and Alan says, Mike, you need to you need to or you'll never stay here and and uh so uh, i said what do i do and alan told me to do exactly with jerry what he was doing with me and and he said you know jerry's in my house and he can leave with the sponsor on sundays 
I needed to go pick him up, and and uh, so I went and picked Jerry up, and uh, on Sunday and took Jerry to a a bull buckout in Narco, uh, California, and I convinced Jerry to get on a bull. I I paid his his fourteen dollars entry fee, and and just before Jerry got on the bull, he came up and he said, "Mike, I can't get on that bull. I can't afford to get hurt." And and I explained to Jerry how he, he was in there because he had five DUIs. He didn't have a job. He was going to go to jail and had nowhere to live. And there was really no reason he couldn't be hurt. And uh, Jerry, Jerry agreed with me and, and uh, rolled that bowl. And he lived. And uh, the next Sunday, since I hadn't got him killed there, I went and picked him up. And Jerry said, we're not going to another rodeo, are we? And I said, no, we're going out in the Riverside Desert, we're going to look for rattlesnakes. I figured maybe I could get him bit. And, uh, boy, we went out there, and, and me and Jerry were driving uh, around out there in the Riverside Desert. We were out in the middle of nowhere, and we went up this hill, and all of a sudden there's cars all over, and, and Jerry said, it's another rodeo, isn't it? And uh, I started looking around. About the same time I noticed that Jerry noticed there was a nude photography shoot. And we just kind of ended up there, and there was nude women everywhere. And uh, me and Jerry parked my car and started the tour. And, uh, you know, about halfway through the tour, I told Jerry, I said, you know, Alan told me if I did this 12-step work that there would be blessings in it. And, and, uh, but uh, Jerry, a uh, uh, couple weeks later, Jerry came to the meeting and he had all his photography equipment. And uh, he was talking people into going out in the Riverside Desert, and they couldn't find this place. They, and, uh, you know, I don't know how many times Jerry talked different people into going out there looking for this place, but they never found it again. And, and uh, so you have to be working with others to find the place. But, uh, you know, Jerry, uh, I started working the steps with Jerry, and, and uh, you know, I'd do the ex- exact same thing with Jerry Allen would do with me. He'd have me. I'd have Jerry read the same book, and and do the same thing, and, you know, I'd go over to, uh, to Alan's house and, and be talking to Alan, and Alan would tell me, you know what your problem is, Mike? You need to grow up. You need to grow up. And, and so I'd be with Jerry that night, and I'd tell Jerry, i said, Jerry, you know what your problem is? You need to grow up. You just need to grow up. And, and uh, you know, me and Jerry would have a new guy in, in my, uh, we called it the AA limo, and and it was uh, my station wagon I got sober with, and, and it was rough-looking. That station wagon was rough-looking. I, I, uh, I'd lived in it the last couple of years I was drunk, and uh, it had dents from the front to the back. I'd, I was in there one time, and I had a frame and hatchet, and I chopped the, the heater, the radio, the air conditioner, everything, a big hole in the dashboard. And people used to get in there and ask me what happened, and I'd tell them they'd say, why? And I'd tell them the truth, I don't know, and uh, I just chopped my dashboard all apart one day, and, and uh, you know, so I didn't have a heater, I, I, I'd be cold a lot of nights, and, and one night I, I built a big fire next to the car, and I pulled the car next to the fire to keep it warm, and I burnt the one side of my car, and so the one side of the car was burnt, it had dents from the front to the back, it had a big hole in it, and then uh, one night I was sleeping in it, and I felt these fingers going through my hair as I was sleeping, and uh, I thought that I'd, I'd got lucky the night before and, and been in the bar and found somebody really nice. And I took my took my sleeping bag down, and the car was full of chickens. And I don't mean just a few; I mean it was full of chickens. And uh, 
Evidently, I'd gone to get a chicken, and I was a greedy drunk, so I'd taken an awfully lot of chickens. And uh, when you're down and out like I was, you don't want to let a good thing go, so I kept most of them. I, they lived in the car with me, and, and uh, it was kind of like Easter every morning. And uh, But those chickens did some damage to the seats. They, they tore the seats all up, and, and uh, so the seats had all the padding coming out, so... So me and Jerry would be in this car, and we'd go to Charlie Street to pick these new guys up. Alan would send me and Jerry to get these new guys, and we'd pick them up, and, and uh, we'd have one of these new guys in the back. And me and Jerry would be up front arguing about who was more immature, me or him. And we'd have uh, this new guy looking at the seats and the side of the window where he couldn't see out because it was bubbled from burnt, being burnt, and, and uh, the hole in the dashboard. And, and me and Jerry up there arguing, and about halfway there, we'd... Uh, turn around and look at him and we'd say, so you want to get sober? And I'd say, well, if you want what we have, you got to do what we do. And uh, we'd get to the meeting and this guy'd go tell Alan that these two aren't right in the head. Is there any way I can get a ride home with somebody else? And, and uh, well, me and uh, I talk about Jerry and Jerry finally fired me as a sponsor because he passed me in the steps. And then uh, AA comes of age where it talks about Jack Alexander doing his article in the Saturday Evening Post and all these frantic alcoholics coming to Alcoholics Anonymous and they literally become the blind leading the blind. And that's what me and Jerry were, the blind leading the blind. And, and uh, you know, Alan had enough sense to know that if, if I was trying to help Jerry, that somehow I wouldn't drink. And, and I was trying to help Jerry. And... And somehow Jerry didn't drink, and, and as far as I know, Jerry's still sober. He, he lives up in Seattle, and he's doing quite well, and, and uh, you know, was the blind leading the blind. He fired me. He ended up uh, in one of those uh, uh, kind of barrack institutions where they can go to work. It's, it's an option rather than jail, and, and uh, so he had a lot of, he couldn't leave on the nights. He'd go to work, and he was locked up in there on the weekends, and and every night, and, and so he was able to work on his steps more, and he, he ended up passing me. But, uh, you know, one of the last visits I had with Jerry in that, uh, in that house, Jerry had called me, and there was a message on the phone when we got home, and, and he could tell it was from uh, Jerry, and I said, Mike, I need to talk to you. And you, you could hear some uh, trouble in Jerry's voice, and, and uh, you know, I, I ended up talking to Jerry later that day, and, and I said, what's up, Jerry? And he said, I... You know, I, I have a, a rat that I've been taking care of in here. It was living under the sink. And they come in with a decon and they killed this rat. And Jerry was tore up over them killing this rat, this, this wild rat. And, and so the last time I, I uh, went in there to see Jerry, I, I went to a pet store and I got a rat, a $2.50 rat. And just before I went in through the, you got to go meet the people and sign in and, and, uh, and check in and all that before they turn into their rooms and I put this rat down my boot and as I was checking in everything it left my boot and started going up my pant leg and, and uh, I, walked, I got in Jerry's room and as soon as I got around the corner I started tearing my pants off and I remember Jerry's eyes just huge like what are we going to do this visiting Sunday and, uh, but uh, he kept that Jerry kept that rat alive the whole time he was in there and, and uh you know, and, and but Alan taught me from an early early state in Alcoholics Anonymous to work with the new guy, and I, and I did. I I tried to work with the new guy. I remember one time uh, 
I, I was talking to some guy, and he didn't want nothing to do with me. And Alan come up behind me, and he says, you know what, Mike? You're probably driving more people away than you're keeping here, but you're still here. And uh, that's how I, I would. I just try to carry that message. I, I try to carry that message. And, and uh, you know, I, I, the, uh, a guy come along, and, and I was kind of going through a, a dilemma, and, and I asked Alan, I says, uh, what do you suggest I do? And Alan said, see that guy right there? Go tell him that, because uh, he wants to get sober, go tell him you'll pick him up every day for 30 days and take him to a meeting. And, and this guy was about as different as, uh, as anybody I'd ever been around. Uh, his name was Paul, and he sold vitamins for a living. He drove a Honda Civic, and he lived in a house in Irvine. He, he was just different. I, I, uh, me and Paul weren't, weren't alike, but, uh, you know, we went to a meeting, and Paul was talking about his, uh, inner feelings at that meeting and I had a connection with Paul and uh, and it was a connection to Alcoholics Anonymous for me I, I I realized how much like Paul I really was how how much like the other alcoholic I was and and uh, you know Paul uh, Paul told the story about he he uh, he drank so many beer beers in the bottle he, he didn't want the neighbors to know when the garbage man come to hear him gee or so we put him in in garbage bags in his garage and break them so that uh, they'd go in the garbage can and they wouldn't ching around as they were going in the, the garbage truck. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I can understand that uh, humility from drinking too much and, and the humility he was feeling. And, you know, uh, he had a goldfish, and, and I remember looking at his goldfish one day, and I was looking in there, and, and the more I looked at that goldfish, I started feeling sorry for it. I said, how long has this thing been in here? And, he said, about three years. And, and I said, you mean it's been in there alone for three years? And, and I said, Paul, that isn't right. I said, you need to get another goldfish and put in there. And, and uh, you know, I, and Paul did, and he come to the meeting. He said, well, thanks a lot, Mike. And I said, what? And he said, I got another goldfish like you told me to. And the next morning, they were both dead. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and... and uh, <laughs> so my, my suggestions to... Uh, the new guy weren't always uh, correct, but uh, like Alan says, you know, I was still here. I was still able to stay at Alcoholics Anonymous trying to help that new guy. And, and uh, you know, I I, uh, I got down here and I wanted to leave. I wanted to, to one more time move. And, you know, Alan, I, I remember, and I this was a, a, a powerful talk. It still stays with me, but Alan was talking about... Uh, you know, if, if I were to leave now, my chances of staying sober real, were real slim. He said, I haven't made it through the process of the steps. And Alan told me that, Mike, he said, you go through the process of these steps, and I can arm you that you can go anywhere. You can go anywhere, and I believe that. I, I believe that. And, and uh, Alan convinced me to stay, and I stayed here till I finished those steps. And, and uh, you know, I... I, I uh, after I finished those steps, I, I did. I went up, I, I made a planned move. And I moved all over the, the damn country when I was drinking. I had, and, and it really was never a move. I was always leaving somewhere, because I was, and a lot of times it was fast. I had to get out of there fast. And, and uh, you know, I was always leaving somewhere. This was a planned move. I went up there, I, I, I found a job prior to going. I, I went up there, I met some people, I went to some meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and it was a planned move, I, and I moved up there, and, and I stayed in uh, contact with Alan on a regular basis for, uh, for uh, a long time up there, and I'd, I'd come down and see Alan, and, 
and Alan become part of my life. And, and uh, you know, even though I was up there, and, you know, I, I had a, a, like we were talking about uh, Montana earlier, I had some fantastic years in Montana, some fantastic years, and, and uh, working with the new guys and, and doing Alcoholics Anonymous, where I, I was... Uh, I was content. I was just content, and and uh, you know through circumstances and uh, you know a divorce and a remarriage, I ended up over in uh, in Idaho. But uh, you know I I I still uh, still hold dearly to Montana. I was going to a meeting one time in Montana. I was I I lived just outside of Montana. I lived in uh, Red Lodge, and then I lived in a little town called Laurel. And I was going into uh, from Laurel to. Uh, uh, Billings one night to a meeting, and I was going down the Sunnage Road. It was uh, it was in the early winter. It was cold, and as I was going, I was on the Sunnage Road. There was all these little fires along the the road, and and I thought somebody was going down the road with uh, sparks going from their vehicle or something, starting all these fires. And I finally come up, and there's a guy standing by one. And I was on the Sunnage Road, and I I yelled over if he was okay. And this guy come running down through the I call them bar pits. They, I guess they call them bar pits. I call them bar pits the side of the road because after the bar we used to end up in them a lot. So that's what I always call them. But he come running down through the the bar pit there and through the fence and run over and and I could tell this guy was drunk and he got my he jumped in my truck and he said my damn bitch sister left me and and this guy was uh, just drunk 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 and and he said uh, I went in the store and she took off and. He said, uh, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going into Billings. And he said, I'll go with you. And I says, well, no, I, I said, where do you want to go? And he said, let's go to a lounge. And I, I says, you know, I don't want to go to a lounge. And he started pulling all these beers out of his pocket, and he said, here, have a beer. And I said, no, I don't drink. And, and uh, I said, well, where do you live? I'll take you home. And he told me where he lived, and, and he said, but I don't want to go home. I want to go wherever you're going. And uh, I told this guy that, I said, well, I'm going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and from the time this guy had got in until then, he hadn't shut up. And he had just shut him up. This guy just shut up. And all of a sudden he said, take me with, take me with you. And uh, I said, have you ever been? He said, oh, I've been a bunch of times, but they don't work. But I need to go back. And, and uh, I took him with me. And it's the only meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous I've ever been thrown out of. They told me to leave. They told me in this guy, he... He wanted a fist fight with the chairperson. He was trying to get this gal to sit on his lap. He, he was just obnoxious, and we got asked to leave. And I was, and his name was Marlon. And you know, I told Marlon, I said, you know, Marlon, uh, I go to the meetings because I want to stay sober and I, I, I want to change my life. And he said, I do too. And I said, I, well, I can tell you, you do, because we just got thrown out of there. And he said, well, I really do. And and I gave him a ride home, and he said he really did. And I said, well, if you really do, I'll pick you up tomorrow at 7 p.m. and he said he really did and that next day I, I picked that guy up at 7 p.m. he was on his front porch and he was sober he got my truck and he said can we do one thing and I said what's that and he said no go to that meeting we were at last night and and uh, you know I took that guy to a meeting but after I'd moved back to Idaho and I went back up there I I happened to be up there I was privileged to give Marlon his eight-year chip that man never had another drink from that night on and he used to always say that if I wouldn't have come along, he'd have never got sober. And, and I don't believe that. I believe that Marlin's time was Marlin's time. And, and when it's our time, the teacher appears. I believe that. I really believe that. And, you know, I, uh, I believe when it's our time or it's time for us to hear something, it's there. I, 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 I know that to be so. And, and uh, 
you know, Marlon's still sober today up there. That uh, I just happened to be the the person that was there that night, and and uh, you know, that's kind of a magic story in Alcoholics Anonymous that that Marlon was where he was at at that time, and I was where I was at, and and uh, I like to think of those as those little the God deals in Alcoholics Anonymous, and and uh, you know what he's done for me in Alcoholics Anonymous, and and uh, you know it's kind of like Joe when Joe come up there and. When I was in that, I was in a plane crash uh, a few years back, and Joe was the first one there before my family or anybody, Keith, had, had sent him over there for support. And, and when uh, my mother and father still asked, you see, they asked about Mormon Joe quite a bit. You see Mormon Joe, and, and uh, he's, uh, my, my uh, family has a lot of respect for Joe just in that short time. And, and when they got there, my family went in, and Joe was there, and, and he kind of figured it was my mother and father, but he said, hi. I'm Uncle Joe, and because uh, it was uh, visitors only, and you know the the sponsorship walked uh, Lisa through that, and and uh, you know it kind of helped them do with uh, with uh, you know helped us get through that, and and uh, we had meetings in there. There were people bringing some meetings. Joe had gone down into the from sponsor direction into the meetings down there in in Spokane, and let people know we were there. And these people had come up, and they'd have a meeting in my room, and then they'd go over to Tate's room and have a meeting and, and uh, you know it was uh, a few weeks before I was able to see Tate we were both banged up pretty good and and uh, about the time I healed up from that from that plane crash I uh, I started having some ailments and they uh, they just I, I didn't know what was wrong I, I was in from one doctor to another doctor to another doctor I know uh, I was in uh, down here in Needles when, when we were over in Needles just before the the Las Vegas men's retreat two years ago and I w- there was one morning I couldn't get up I, I just couldn't my back was in in such pain and so I, I was just taking huge amounts of ibuprofen and and uh, I'd end up with infections all kind of infections I, I kept ending up with these eye infections and and uh, you know I ended up with pneumonia in the hospital with pneumonia and then I had a doctor tell me that uh, my problem was I had a crushed vertebrae in my back and I had pleurisy pushing on this crushed vertebrae, and that's why it hurt so bad. And uh, it just kept getting worse and worse, and I started ending up in the emergency rooms with muscle spasms so intense around my chest that I couldn't breathe. And, and uh, you know, I, I didn't know what was wrong. And, and uh, you know, this, the, the crushed vertebrae was about all I could think about. And, and I kept wondering, how could they miss a crushed vertebrae in a plane crash when they... Did MRIs of my entire body, and then I think, well, maybe they did, and but it kept getting worse, and I kept getting this big lump on there, and they told me that was scar tissue, and I finally went to a a chiropractor, and he told me there was something else up, and they sent me to uh, to get some tests, and I was diagnosed with cancer, and this was, uh, believe it or not, it was six six of oh six that I was diagnosed with cancer, and and I remember the day I went in there, and. and uh, the doctor, he, he told me, you know, the kind of cancer you have, it's treatable, but it's terminal. It's a terminal cancer. And, and uh, you know, that was a, a tough pill to swallow. That was a tough pill to swallow. And, and uh, you know, I, I started calling Keith on a, a real regular basis through there. There was some fear and, and there was, uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, unknowns. And, uh, you know, the thing I found is, is it, it, I kept doing Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I, I started searching for, for people to work with and, 
and I start getting in, in worse physical shape and worse physical shape, and then they start doing uh, radiation and chemotherapy on me, and, and it, it literally knocked me down. And I had these guys that, uh, that I'd helped up there, the guys that I'd been sponsoring, the guys that I'd been holding meetings, they, they literally become my lifeline up there. All of a sudden they're in there and they're feeding me and they're bringing meetings into me and, and uh, they're going grocery shopping for me. And, and you know, uh, Keith told me one day, he says, you know, because uh, Alan, Alan died of cancer too and there was some turmoil between, the, between Alcoholics Anonymous and, and the family in, in Alan's death. And he, he told me, don't let any turmoil happen between Alcoholics Anonymous and, and uh, your family. And you know, my family, I have two sisters that are also in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and I have, well, I have uh, five sisters and two that are in Alcoholics Anonymous, two that really need to be here, and I have one sister that's normal. I'm the only boy. And uh, when I say normal, she don't drink, so I don't know if she's, if she were to drink, if she'd be here. And, and uh, you know, so my, my uh, parents are exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous. They, they, they've been around it for ever since I was a kid, really. And, and, you know, I was never sent to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was taken to my first meeting is how I got to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. They, in the little town I was at, they didn't have any, and I don't think they knew much about it, but they, uh, they loaded me up, me and some other guy, and took us, and that was my introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. But my family's been exposed to it my entire sobriety, and they, uh, you know, I, I, I've, uh, my mother and father have sat in a lot of meetings. They have a lot of respect for this. I remember hearing my mom in, I, I believe it was a, at my one sister, when my one sister got a, had an AA anniversary, but they, uh, my mother was in there and she said, you know, I don't know how Alcoholics Anonymous works, I just know it does from what I see happening in my children's life. And, and uh, you know, this, uh, so there's no tension, there hasn't, there, there's no problem between uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and, and my family, but uh, it's a lot easier to, to be taken care of by the AA members. I got one, uh, one AA member, him and his wife, they're, uh, they're realtors up there, and, and Ron, and, and uh, you know, Ron was at uh, the Sky Dogs convention up there. He was also over at Sturgis with uh, a couple of us. But Ron and, and uh, you know, he was over there, and, and Ron told me one day, he says, you know, Mike, if it comes time to it that you need somewhere to go there at the end, he says, you have my house. And, uh, you know... That you, uh, I, and, and Ron, he, he told me one thing, he says, you won't have to go alone. And, uh, you know, I know I have that with Ron and Vicky. They're both realtors, and so one can pick up the other one's end, and, and, uh, I have that at the end. And that is, that's such a blessing to me, such a blessing to know that, that, uh, you know, I have that, that I'm not gonna have to go alone in this deal. And, you know, I, uh, I've been, I have two diseases. I have cancer and I have uh, cancer. And I'm here to tell you the treatment for cancer sucks. It really does. It, it's a painful, painful uh, uh, treatment. And, uh, but I'm telling you, if I had to have a choice to die between alcoholism and cancer, it wouldn't be alcoholism. You know, it would be cancer. I would choose to die from cancer. And, and uh, you know, the treatment for cancer, for alcoholism is fun. I mean, it can be fun. Last night there was a bunch of us and we loaded up and, and uh, we went over there to Cooper Street. And when we were at Cooper Street, 
we were we laughed on the way to Cooper or Cooper Fellowship, and and uh, we laughed on the way to another meeting after that. But but there was a lot of laughter in in Dan's truck last night. There was a lot of laughter, and uh, I believe that's uh, a healing part of Alcoholics Anonymous is that laughter. And you know, I come in here. There wasn't any laughter when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. My my life was just so destroyed and. And with absolutely no idea of, of which way to turn, there was no laughter. And in that part in the big book where it talks about Bill and Bob, where they go to see AA number three, and they're happy and they're smiling, and AA number three doesn't think it's very pleasant. He don't see very much humor in it, and I understand that because uh, when I come in here, there wasn't a lot of humor, in it, and there is today. I mean, there's humor today. You know, yesterday we were. I was when I first got here, and Keith got here, and. And uh, John, I've been able to hang around John. He's fairly new, and I love hanging out with the new guys. And, and I was sitting by John, and, and Keith looked at John, and he says, You know, John, Mike could be laying on a couch loaded up on Oxycontin, but instead he chooses to be here. And he said, Look in Mike's eyes, John. And John was looking in my eyes, and he said, uh, You know, Mike could be loaded. And John, all of a sudden, John said, Are you on anything? I said, yeah, they got me on testosterone. And John said, he's looking in right in my eyes, and he said, what does that do? And I said, well, it makes you horny. And John couldn't keep eye contact from then on. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, but I, I do. I, can, I, I have a lot of humor in this, and, and uh, you know, I, 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 I believe the reason I get so sentimental a lot of times when I talk to Alcoholics Anonymous from a gratitude level of what this thing's done in my life. You know, at uh, 10 years sobriety, my mother gave me my chip. And, uh, you know, my mother has called me every one of my AA birthdays. She's never missed one from my first birthday. And on my 10th my, uh, year AA birthday, she, and, and I didn't know this until I was 10 years sober, my mother gave me that chip and she said, Mike, do you know why I've always remembered your birthday? And I thought it was, well, it's just such a special day. Your son got sober. And, and she said, Mike, that's the day my father took his life. And she said, I used to dread that day. Her, her father was a, a bad alcoholic, and he killed himself in a, in a horrific way. He, he stabbed himself up through the gut into the heart with a butcher knife. And uh, she, he did that when, he, when she was young. And, and my mother was haunted by that for years and years and years. And she said, Mike, I used to dread November the 11th. I used to dread that day. And she said, you're getting sober on that day is the greatest gift you could have given me. She said, because come November the 11th every year, I can think of a life given to me instead of the life that was taken from me in, uh, by alcoholism. And, and uh, you know, I, another one of them little God deals, just as, as, uh, as small as my AA birthday. You know, another one of those God deals. And, and uh, you know, it is. I... I I went through a stem cell transplant. They, they tried a stem cell transplant onto me, and what they, they try to do with it is they, they try to get it to give you three to five years to put it in remission. And, and what mine did was they just stabilized the cancer, and, and I still have the cancer, and, and so it, it becomes an unknown again. You know, they, I, could, uh, I could make it three years. I could be dead in three months, and, and it's an unknown. But uh, you know what I've chosen to do with... Uh, with this is continue doing what I'm doing and and uh, you know that that day that I called Keith and I told Keith that I I was diagnosed with terminal cancer and, and Keith says you know a lot of people they, they take their lives or they end up drunk from that and and you know I, I 
the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, from the time they told me that is I had the choice. It was my choice, and and you know I, I chose not to drink. I chose not to uh, to take my life. And and uh, you know I read a, a saying one time about uh, living. Living is consciousness, and uh, I've always held on to that. Living is consciousness, and and uh, it, it struck me because of the way I used to drink and the way I used to use that I went for unconsciousness. I went for death. And uh, there at the end, I wanted to die. And, and uh, with my drinking, I just wanted to die. And, and uh, you know, I, I didn't end up dead. And, and today, I, I like being conscious. I want to be alive. I like being conscious. And, and uh, you know, I should have been killed three years ago, three and a half years ago in that, that plane crash. And God gave me uh, three and a half more years. And, and uh, looking back, is, is, uh, I wasn't ready for that three and a half years ago for what I was told Six, six of oh six. I wasn't ready for that, and and today I am. You know, so uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, in in the eighteen plus years that I've been sober, the one thing Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me is prepared me for that, where I'm okay with it. I lay my head today uh, down at night, and, I, and I'm comfortable. I'm just okay with who I am, and and uh, you know, my little boy lives with me, and we have a fantastic relationship. Me and my boy, a fantastic relationship, and and. Uh, that little boy is uh, is uh, a lot of. He's my best friend. He really is. We have a fantastic relationship, and and I have a fantastic relationship with my father. He lives about uh, three miles from my house, and and uh, you know it, it's uh, those are all gifts in my life. I remember one time my dad uh, looking at me when I was uh, back when I was drinking. He said, "You know, I watched alcohol destroy my father's life, Mike." And now I'm watching it do it to my own sons. And he said, that's real hard. And, uh, you know, my dad doesn't have to watch me destroy, destroy my life by drinking. He, he gets to, uh, you know, they know I'm sober, and they don't question that. Even through all I've been through, they don't question that. They know I'm sober, and they know how important Alcoholics Anonymous is to me. They know I'm down here, and, and uh, you know, they tell me to have fun and enjoy myself when I come down here. And, and you know, uh, there at the end, I didn't have a relationship with my family. They didn't know if I, if I was alive or dead. I, there hadn't been any contact with them. And, and uh, you know, I built a relationship with my, uh, my siblings, too. And, you know, my one sister I have in Austin, I talked to, I talked to her the other day, and, and I was mentioning that, or she mentioned that Keith and Sue were coming out there. She, they, she'd seen it on a flyer, and, and uh, I told her that uh, they'll be there Friday night, and Keith said to give him a call, and, and I gave Keith uh, my sister's phone number, and she said, uh, well, what should I do? And I said, well, just call him and tell him who you are. And she said, and then what do I do? And I said, well, then just be yourself, and he'll feel sorry for you. And she, she started laughing, and she said, you know, that's not very funny. And I said, well, I got you laughing, didn't it? And, and uh, they are, they're... they're uh, uh, I, I've been able to rebuild that uh, that friendship and that uh, with with my uh, my siblings and you know I I have a nephew that's uh, handicapped he's he's uh, has a muscle disorder he's been in a wheelchair since he was about eight years old and and uh, it's got worse and worse and worse he's he's 24 now they never thought he'd make it till 20 he he uh, he's in he's in bad shape he, his uh, his internal organs as well as his uh, his muscle, he has a muscle disorder, which so his heart's weak, his lungs are weak, and, and but Nick is popular. This, he's 20, uh, he's either 24 or 25, but he still has guys he graduated from high school with come and pick him up, 
hang out with him and stuff. And when they, he was going through high school and they had the, the king prom and, and king, or the prom and the queen at the, the prom dance and stuff. And Nick, uh, Nick was runner up. And, uh, when he was running, there were two others. And I said, who are you running against? He said, and this was several years ago, he said, so and so basketball, or coach of the, or, uh, coach of the basketball team and so and so. They're the coach of the football team and then, Nick in the wheelchair, and but his his attitude is just so positive. It's just so positive that uh, Nick's uh, Nick's popular. I was flipping through a channel one day, and they were showing a revival on TV, and I said, you know, Nick, that's what we could do. I could take you take you to that revival, and and uh, Nick said, why? And I said, well, they they're healing people here, and he said, it wouldn't work on me, and I said, why not? And Nick says. Well, Mike, this is how I'm supposed to be. This is just how I'm supposed to be, and and he has total acceptance. And and uh, you know, I believe this is how I'm supposed to be. I I don't, uh, you know, and and so I don't go into the self pity. Like why that why me, you know? And uh, when I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, there at the end, there was a lot of self pity. There was a lot of self pity, you know, because you know, why do I have to have alcoholism? Why can I have been blind or with no legs or something? Why? Why alcoholism? There was such a uh, feeling of self-pity and, and anything but alcoholism, and and uh, I try to keep my head up, you know, with what I'm going through, and and have dignity, you know, have dignity, and and uh, a lot of people ask me how I do it, and and uh, you know, it's the the gift of the program. I do it one day at a time. I do this deal one day at a time in Alcoholics Anonymous, and and today I'm doing okay. You know, today I'm doing okay with with where I'm at and, and physically how I feel and, and that's all I have. I'm doing okay today and you know Nick was getting ready to go out one night and and uh, my mother, his grandma was there and she said, Nick, I want you to be careful tonight and, and Nick said, you know I don't know why everybody is worried about me all the time like that and and you know a lot of handicapped kids follow sports really close and, and Nick's like that. He, he follows basketball and football and and uh, it, it's a big part of his pastime, following sports. And, and he says, you know, Grandma, he said, I want you to know one thing. And, and uh, like I said, he's in a wheelchair, and, and it's an electric wheelchair, and he's got to move it around, and, and he, he can't do anything with his hands. He, it's, uh, he does it with his, kind of puts the joysticker in his wrist and stuff. He, and he, uh, he has absolutely no mobility in his legs. And, and he said, you know, Grandma, if anything ever happens to me, I want you to know one thing. I want you to know that I'm playing basketball. And, and uh, you know, I, I believe Alcoholics Anonymous is a lot like that, that I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and what I was given the ability to do was get up and be a starter on the basketball team. And, and uh, you know, I don't want to sit on the bench. I don't want to sit on the bench. And, and uh, Grandma, if anything ever happens to me, I'll be, I'm, don't worry. I'm going to be uh, playing basketball. And, and uh you know, what a gift we have. And, and so if you're, you're new or relatively new, I'm here to tell you, you can either sit on the bench in Alcoholics Anonymous or you can get up and be on the starting start and front. And, and uh, that's what I've chosen to do, is I've chosen to get up here and be on the starting front in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and uh, it's been a, a fantastic voyage, a fantastic flight, you know, from where I come from, from the, the state I come from. You know, uh, a couple weeks before I got sober, I did one of the most sincere prayers I've ever done. And it was, uh, it was a, be- a mercy prayer to die. And I was pleading with God 
please let me go. Please don't don't make me go on. It was a mercy cry. And uh, God wouldn't grant that. Instead, God let me get sober. It's like that night I chased that cop, and he I couldn't catch him. I believe God knew it was my time to get sober. And, and uh, when it's your time to get sober and you're ready to get sober, the avenues are open, the teachers are there, the doors are open, and all i got to do is keep following them. And, and uh, as much as I didn't know, I didn't know what to do to change my life. And, and I would just follow that direction. This is what I want you to do. And I would follow that direction, and it changed my life. It changed my life from dream, being a drunk kid to the way I used to, to where I eventually ended up. And, and I ended up living like a damn rat. I mean, living in the car with chickens and, and uh, you know, sleeping under the bridges and meeting the Salvation Armies and, and checking in one detox after another detox and, and sitting in the missions and, and telling myself one more time when I was drunk in the mission and they say, does anybody want to be saved? Don't raise your damn, damn hand again. And because and, I'd be drunk in the missions, always raising my hand and, and they'd pray over me and turn me loose and I'd be drunk again. And, and uh, from that, that, that uh, hideous state where I couldn't make any, any changes or, or get sober, to have being diagnosed with terminal cancer and having the choice of rather to drink or not and choosing not to. And, and what a gift. What a gift. And, uh, you know, and, and to have those guys in my life, you know, to, to have those guys uh, over there helping me. Doug was sentenced to 100, 100 days of community service. And, and uh, when he was sentenced to that, I told Doug, I said, you know, Doug, go talk to your probation officer and, and uh, ask if you can work them hours off for me. And, uh, and Doug says, my probation officer isn't going to let me do that. And, and I said, Doug, just ask him. And Doug went and asked his probation officer, and Doug explained the situation. And Doug come over to my house, he'll say, he said, you'll never guess what my probation officer said. And, and so... Uh, you know, as I, after that stem cell, when I needed somebody to go shopping and cooking and all that, Doug was able to do that for his community service. And, and uh, you know, I want to tell you a story, one more story to finish up about Doug. But, uh, you know, Doug come in, we brought him down, when he was brand new, and, and down to the, the men's camp out there in, uh, uh, out in the desert over by Indio and, and 29 Palms, somewhere out by there. And, and Doug, on the way down, he, Doug was, uh, he was in real trouble when he, he, uh, got arrested there. But on the way down, Doug kept counting. And he'd count and he'd say, I'm only 29, I'm not, or I'm only 28, I'm not 29. And then he'd count again and he'd have his driver's license out and he'd say, I am, I'm only 28, I'm not 29. And I said, well, you missed a year? And he said, well, all last year I was 28 when I should have only been 27. He said, I don't know where I got messed up, but it's been a couple of years ago. And Doug had been living in the garage for two years when he came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, what he got arrested for, the charge that Doug was arrested for carried 315 to life. And he was in a lot of trouble, and, and he just started going with us. Doug just started going to meetings with us and these campouts, and, and he started doing AA with us. And... and uh, when we went to court, well, he threw his plea bargains and everything. They got it down to three, uh, uh, seven to fifteens. And when we, we went to court, uh, Doug's judge says, you know, young man, I'm here to tell you today, if you weren't doing what you would have been doing to change your life, because I can see that something's working in your life, you'd have gone to prison today for a long time. And Doug was given six months, uh, six month rider. 
and uh, which kind of went against what everybody expected, and because uh, Doug was facing a lot of time, and and then the, the judge stopped, and the judge says, you know, off the record, she said, I want to thank Alcoholics Anonymous for what they've done in this young man's life, and uh, she said, my hats off to you because you have made a tremendous change in this young man's life, and I know if he continues hanging around with you, he will continue to grow and be prosperous in our society, and. Uh, you know, I believe that, and, and uh, you know, that's just one more, uh, one more miracle in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and uh, you know, God's given me the privilege to see enough of those things to know that uh, he's behind the doors, or he's in the, the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, that, that, uh, that the hand of AA lays in God's hand. I know that today, and, and uh, you know, that's a blessing. But it's an honor to speak here tonight to you, and, and it's, uh, it's humbling, which is good for me. And... and uh, but it's, uh, it's a joy to do it. Thank you.